So Matthew 7, we, we will be back in Matthew 7 probably some point next year, but it's a long enough gap, I hope, that it won't be too repetitious. But I, it was really on my heart to teach this passage. When I get these two or three weeks uh, between books, I really want to teach what's on my heart. Um, and this was one of those passages. Um, we find ourselves uh, in the context, and obviously the joy of going through it when we do next next few years is that we will have the full flow of context but it comes at the end of the sermon of the mount passage uh, where jesus is correcting uh, jewish misunderstandings of mosaic law and as he comes through this and as he comes to the end of it there are some valid questions that will be in people's heads i mean for example if if you have heard it said that you should not commit adultery and now Jesus is saying yeah but at the same time when you have lust in your heart you're essentially breaking that commandment and it's not as if you've you've actually committed adultery in a physical sense but that commandment is speaking against you who are doing it inwardly if you are someone who you've never murdered anybody and you see the commands do not murder but you have hatred in your heart towards people then, then that command is speaking to you as well. And so when you come through that teaching, it seems reasonable that one might say, well, hold on a second. This faith thing is a lot harder than maybe I thought it was. That the commands are much tougher than I thought they were. What does this say about me? And so it is in that context that Jesus reminds his listeners that the gate is indeed narrow and that there are few who find the way to life verses 13 and 14 and then by way of context we're really going to pick up today in um, verse 21 but I just want to deal with verses 15 to 20 very quickly for context sake beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they're ravenous wolves sometimes uh, analogies and idioms and expressions are are so common to us that we don't even stop to think about them and when we talk about a wolf in sheep's clothing it's something that you know trans transcends cultures we all understand what that means and it comes from here in the bible and the idea of course is that is that when someone comes to you in sheep's clothing they, they you don't go oh gosh why is that person dressed up like a sheep you say oh there's a sheep the whole point of this, I mean, as an analogy, is that you think that person is a sheep, but actually, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. In other words, there are people who come in, in a church setting, in a, in, a, in a setting of the people of God, there are people who come and they seem very nice. Very nice. Sometimes even nicer than most of you. I try and encourage you those, those who've been here a while know that we want this place to be a safe place where people can come with their faults and flaws and, and not, be ex, not be accepted 
not accepting those flaws, but, but seeing you and trying to help you overcome. We want people to be honest about the, the pain and the, 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 um, the suffering that they feel, to acknowledge that suffering in a safe environment. And, and so, you know, sometimes that's something that really those who are maybe in the false prophets crew aren't so good at. Everything has to look just right, you know? Button the shirt up, straighten the tie, just look just right. Now, oh, now I know I can trust you, you know? It's a tactic that the Mormons have been using for a, for a very, very long time, you know? That they will look the part. You can see how good, I mean, they actually say this, you can see how good we are, just, just look at us, look how good we are. And uh, you bunch of ragabonds don't qualify for that. And so it is that when the false prophets come in, they can seem a little bit more sheepy than even the sheep do sometimes. So, so if, if you get a bunch of sheep arrive, how do you know which of the sheep are genuine sheep? Because you look at the sheep and that, she, that sheep's got some dirty wool here and that sheep over there's got some, some sort of bramble stuck in its, in its wool. And, and oh, that's a lovely pure white sheep. That's a nice sheep. But inwardly, the white sheep might be the one that's a ravenous wolf. Whereas the one that's kind of got a bit of mud here and the one that looks a bit disheveled here, they may be the genuine sheep. So how do you know? Well, the answer is given to us. You will know them by their fruits. And, and the principle is, is pretty simple. Uh, grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. In other words, you don't get nice fruit you know, you don't, you don't get a pear from an apple tree. You don't get an apple from a pear tree. You know, you go to the right tree to get the fruit. So what a tree is, if you're no expert in horticulture and you see a tree and you're like, I wonder what kind of tree that is. Then you wait for the fruit to come out and then the fruit comes out in season and you go, aha, I recognize, I didn't recognize the tree, but I recognize the fruit. And in time, as the season develops, it comes out. And sometimes in a church setting, people are around for quite a while. And the fruit doesn't come. And you wait a while longer, and the fruit doesn't come. Sometimes they become members, and it's not until significantly later that you start to see the true fruit. And so patience, I think, is one of the key things here whenever we have a context of fruit But the point is clear. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Now, little caveat as we close that section. Um, I know that there are the sensitive souls amongst us who whenever we come to passages like this, and we're talking about bad fruit... You remember how you did something wrong this morning or perhaps last night or the day before. Or maybe you're the kind of person that you're still thinking about that big thing you did wrong five, ten years ago. And you can't let it go. And it's very easy for us to think, well, he's talking about me because look at my bad fruit. No, let's be clear what the text is saying. It's saying if someone is not a true believer then the fruit that exposes that lack of true faith is going to eventually come out. It's not talking about you when you stumble and fall, if you are a true believer. 
And, and there's, there's a problem that we have with these passages and that we're going to have with this one today. And I don't think I really know an answer yet to how to resolve this problem. And the problem is this. Whenever you preach passages that warn of those who are not truly saved and talk about the fruit that will evidence that lack of salvation, the people who it is warning are always there going, mm, yeah, nice passage, not a problem. It just misses them. There are people who can be unbelievers and sit in churches for decades and it just never impacts them somehow. And you're just, you're there, you're preaching your heart out and, ah, you know, this is what the word says. Be sure that you're in the faith. Be, be sure. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 no problem. And then at the same time, someone who is in the faith, but is more sensitive sold, they're there saying, man, I, I think I was too proud three weeks ago. Maybe that's me. And it always seems to be that the wrong people get condemned and the wrong people get encouraged. I don't know the answer to this problem. But what I do know is that because of this problem, I kind of made a, not made a conscious effort, but I kind of avoided preaching these kinds of passages for many years. And then when enough time goes by, you see enough people who start to show the fruit, who never were really saved, and you wish you preached these passages a little bit more. And I think it's important that they get preached from time to time. And I think the thing that really put this on my heart is that there was something else that came up in the news this week. And I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory because I think it's important that you understand why this passage is on my heart. Because the sensitive soul among you are probably thinking, he knows I'm not a believer, he's preaching to me. So I just want to tell you why this is on my heart this week. Okay? When I was first saved, I was saved at 12 years old. I wasn't very confident as a young man. Uh, and I was kind of, you know, that awkward age of life anyway. And I think from the age of 12 to maybe 15, 16, I think I went forward at about 25 altar calls. I mean, I was just, you know, I can, I can remember the day that I first believed. I can remember, you know, praying a prayer and I can remember walking away from that and walking across this green, uh, grassy area at school and the, 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 boys are playing British Bulldog, I'll have to teach you that game one day, they're playing this game, running up and down, and I'm walking across and dodging these people, I'm thinking, I'm a Christian now, everything is different, and at 12, in a not great doctrinally sound environment, you know, with regards to those who were Christians teaching me, I understood the gospel, and I was saved. I knew that I was turning from sin. I knew that Christ was taking the throne in my life. And I knew that life was going to have to be different from here on in. I understood that this was new life in, in, in a very basic sense. And yet nonetheless, I was so conscious of my sin and my failing and me not being a good example of being a Christian that whenever there was an evangelistic event, you know, some, some evangelist would come into town and what have you, I would be there at the end of the message convicted again saying, well, maybe I wasn't. I'm really going to be saved now. And I would go up each and every time. 
And, and, and there were at least two of those occasions over a period of a couple of years where there was one particular evangelist that was in town. And he was a young guy at the time. He was probably, I mean, he seemed old to me because I was like, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, that kind of age. So, but he was probably late 20s or something like that, relatively young, um, maybe, maybe even early 20s. And, and he came into town and he did this sort of gospel presentation. And man, I'm telling you, as, as a kid, it was cool. He played a bit of U2 here and then did a bit of talking here. And then there was this song here and he played that. He could play the guitar. I mean, he, knew he could play, he could sing. And then there's a cool pop video and, and then he preaches a bit more. Man, this was great. This is the sort of thing you could bring your friends to, right? I mean, it was cool. So when he came back, we try and bring someone else in and what have you. I think I went forward both times. And he was a cool guy. And cool guys tend to do well in life because they're, you know, cool. And so as time went by, he got better known. He got to do other things. He set up his own Christian charity. He decided to do work amongst the, um, the impoverished and, and those with drug addictions and what have you and to help the community and to do those kind of things. He ended up getting ordained. And then, because of his popularity, he ended up on British TV. Now, you've got to remember a British TV, back when I was a kid, you could count the number of channels, I think you still can count the number of channels, the sort of terrestrial channels on the fingers of your hand. I mean, we didn't have satellite TV in those days. So if you were on TV, it was a big deal. And he got a regular slot on breakfast TV. And I remember breakfast TV being a big deal, because unlike you guys, you've had 100 channels for 100 years, seemingly, you know... The channels wouldn't even be on until a certain time of the day. It was like a big deal when they started. What, we're going to have TV at breakfast time? Wow, how are people going to be productive and get on with their lives if there's TV to watch at breakfast time? I remember that whole kind of thing. And he would be the, the regular rev, the, the vicar who would come on to TV to, to give a kind of God thing for five minutes or give a Christian viewpoint and what have you. And he became bigger and bigger. And he kind of, you know, played on his coolness. And he always hung out with the cool kids. I remember about the time I got married to Jenny, that he was preaching, maybe a year before that, he was preaching um, at a festival. And, you know, he, he dropped an S-bomb during a sermon and used that as a clever thing to try and point out people being upset about one thing but not another and so on and so forth. And he was the kind of little bit bad but cool kid. Then about 10 years ago, maybe a little more, he got in with some really bad cool kids. And he ended up denying that Jesus died in our place for our sins. He thought, as was taught by many people, including one of the the guy who founded Hillsong, including many other um, people who are involved in peddling false gospels, he taught that if If Jesus was being punished by the Father for our sins, if it was literally a punishment, him being punished in our place, then that would be, and I quote, cosmic child abuse. He ended up getting to the point where he was so keen to be seen to be, you know, TV, be taken to this event, be invited to that event, that he became aware of just how offensive the gospel is. 
As Ben preached to us, I think just last Sunday, the gospel is foolishness to the perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the glory of God. And so what happened then is that this man has just continued down this trail. And why did he come to my mind just this week? Because he put out a tweet saying that God's pronouns are they, them. And he was trying to do a clever play on the Trinity. Obviously, he doesn't know the Trinity well enough to understand that he was jumping into an ancient heresy anyway. But he then talked about God, mother slash father and son and spirit. And that's why the pronouns would be they, them. And we should use pronouns they, them for God because then people will feel more inclusive and welcomed and and you know the rest. And he's gone in the deep end on every cool issue. Anything that the world thinks is cool, he's with the world. And anything that that God says in his word, well, that's kind of for you kind of people who are going to interpret it that way, but we know better than that because God is love and love is love and so on and so forth. And he made me think of this passage in so many different ways because Jesus, having established that the way is narrow and having established that the fruit will eventually come forth, He then warns them and says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is one of the most astonishing statements. It's a statement that every person who calls themselves a Christian needs to know about. I was, and I won't, I won't say who, but somebody the other day who is a public figure, I saw a clip where they were testifying that they're now a Christian, they call themselves a Christian, and they were being interviewed by this particular channel, you know, and were asking questions. And I got through like a nine or ten minute clip of this person saying that they were a Christian and telling their testimony, and the person interviewing going, yeah, yeah, how wonderful, how exciting. And the gospel wasn't mentioned once in those entire ten minutes. We need to understand the reality of this text very, very carefully. And so at this point, we're going to look more at the details, okay? We all who are saved will say, Lord, Lord. But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing I want us to break down is what does it mean to say, Lord, Lord? Now, some of you have dealt with this with me before, and I will just try and deal with it very briefly as a result. But in the Old Testament, the word for Lord, as in Lord and Master, boss, person in charge, mighty one, etc., is the Hebrew word Adonai, and God is called Adonai multiple times, multiple times. But the name of God was Yahweh. That was his name. As many of you know, it originates from, uh, etym- uh, as an etymology from the concept of I am. That God just is. That his character is his name, and his name is his character, and his glory is his name and character. And his name, as we can best try and pronounce it, is Yahweh. And that is the name that speaks of who he is, his covenant love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his long-suffering. 
This is the righteousness of God is contained within his name. And so for the people of God, his name, in the Old Testament, his name was everything because it expressed the covenant relationship they had. He wasn't just powerful and to be obeyed, Adonai. He wasn't just creator God in the heavens, Elohim. He was our God, Yahweh. And when the Jews, who didn't want to take the name of the Lord in vain, and that's a misunderstanding, but we'll leave that for another day, they didn't want to translate that name of God or even speak that name of God. So when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the language of the day, which was Greek, from about 200 years before the time of Christ onwards, they, they didn't translate the name of God. They just translated it with the Greek word for Lord. So now you have the Old Testament. And when it means, when the Hebrew says Lord, the Greek says Lord. And when the Hebrew says Yahweh, it also says Lord. And that is why in almost every English Bible, you have Lord in little letters for Adonai. And then in English versions, you will have Lord in capital letters which indicated that it was Yahweh. Now we as a church have shifted in our pew Bibles and preaching to the legacy standard, which is one of the first English versions that just says Yahweh, which is, I find fantastic and I love it for that. But what you need to understand is that the Old Testament mindset speaks of Lord for Adonai and speaks of Lord for Yahweh. So when you come to the New Testament, and it says, Lord, you've got to ask yourself a question. Is it speaking of Lord in the sense of Lord and Master? Or is it speaking of Lord as in the sense of Yahweh? Now, this is very important for this passage. Because he goes on to say, verse 22, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy. I think the whole basis of this passage, the whole basis of this passage is that he's not just, these people aren't just saying, Master, Master, we did things for you. But rather they're saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, we did things for you. They're pleading that they have that covenant relationship. When somebody denies the Trinity, when someone denies that Jesus is God, we know that they're outside the faith. But the reality is that there are many, many, many people whose theology is good enough that they will even acknowledge that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is God incarnate. And they're still not saved. That's the shocker. Right there. So we need to explore further. There are those that will say Yahweh, Yahweh. And and, and again, notice, notice the deity of Christ here in the Old Testament. They will say, to me, Jesus, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's a heck of a thing he's saying. People will come to him and they will acknowledge who he is and yet they won't enter the kingdom of heaven why but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter 
In other words, and this is the reason for the foundation in verses 15 to 20, the fruit will show that you are genuinely saved. The fruit will show. There are those who will come and they will become, you know, church members of a church. There are those who, who will be baptized. There are those who will be, um, who, who will profess Christ. And then later in their life, they will deny him. And it's going to become very relevant that he says to those people, get away from me. I never knew you. That covenant relationship was never there. And the way in which we see true salvation is through the fruit. There's no way around it. You can't have a Christianity that says, come forward at this altar call, be emotionally moved by the message, have an intellectual agreement with various doctrinal positions, such as there being a trinity, such as Jesus being God, such as Jesus dying on a cross. That You, you simply cannot believe certain things, have an emotional reaction, and then presume that you are now saved, you can live however you like, you've got your ticket to heaven in your back, pocket and everything's going to be okay. You simply cannot do that. And I am very, very, very aware that when I first came to this church, and I was aware then as well, that the likelihood of everybody in the church being saved was absolutely minimal. And sometimes the hardest people to reach are people who sit and listen to sermons every Sunday because they never question. And the Bible Belt is full of churches and churches that are full where there are countless people who put on their Sunday best show up looking good say all the right things and then go home and live like heathens and sometimes the harder people to reach than even those people are the people who do things like the music they listen to is Christian music and they, you know have Christian books on their bookshelves. They have Christian bumper stickers on their cars, Christian t-shirts. They probably only drink milk from Christian cows, as someone famously once said. And they're the hardest of all, because they'll, they'll never question. One of the joys of this job is seeing people come, and you preach, and you see them change. One of the saddest things about this job is when you preach and you preach and you preach and you preach and it has no impact on anyone, someone's life. And that's heartbreaking. And so it is that we need to see this fruit in our lives. Now, again, and I really want to be careful here for the, for the sensitive, soft-souled people I do not want you questioning your salvation every time you sin. If we questioned our salvation every time that we sinned, then we would be questioning our salvation multiple times an hour. And sometimes the people who question their salvation the most are doing so because they are more aware of their sin and an awareness of our sin is one of the fruits of salvation. 
It's when people behave badly and they go to church year after year after year and they have the same character flaws and the same faults and they justify those sins and they explain away those sins that, that you have the problem. But people are changed by the word of God if the spirit of God is within them. Listen, if a person is a Christian, then the spirit of God indwells them. If the spirit of God indwells you and you hear the word of God, that is going to change you unless you work very hard at quenching the Holy Spirit that is within you. And it does happen. And there are those who backslide. And there are those who fall into sin. Oh my goodness, if, if David, who was a man after God's own heart, quote unquote, multiple times, if he can commit adultery and then kill off the woman's husband, who, by the way, was a close friend of his, so that he can get away with having impregnated another man's wife, and still be a believer. Then, by the way, I'm not, I'm not opening the opportunities here for you. But suffice to say that we can mess up. And it doesn't mean that we're not saved. But you look at David when he's confronted with his sin. I know for years and years. I struggled with the sin of anger. Except I should correct myself. I didn't really struggle. I just justified it. And it was only many years later when someone confronted me over it and that I was kind of like suddenly awoken from my slumber and it was like I've got a problem here and I haven't admitted it and I haven't acknowledged it I've excused it anger's a great sin to excuse you know because you can you can just put an adjective in front of it righteous anger or you can just call it passion and of course it's easy as well, in my case, I, I, it wasn't like I had hatred in my heart and I just associated hatred and anger. So I'm like, well, I don't hate that person, so I'm not angry, I'm just really hurt. But sometimes when you're hurt, you lash out and that's anger. But you kind of, you know, you're a Christian, you kind of, you adjust the furniture, put a few words here, put a few words there, and what have you, and you maneuver things around. So I understand that change is gradual. I understand that change takes time. I understand that all of us are, are, are in our sins, and all of us are needing to change more than we already have. I get that. But when a person is truly unsaved, then there is fruit that will come from that. Let me say this clearly. We need to be a church where we don't simply focus on overt sins and allow the church-permitted sins to get a pass. For too often in churches, there are certain sins, you know, someone's having an affair, sin. Someone, someone you know, is, is, is committing homosexual acts, sin. Somebody's coming, you know, you know these, these overt things that we're happy to call out as sins within our circles. Although, as we've said, other churches, maybe not so much so. But even in churches that will call out on overt and obvious sins, not only do other sins like pride... Sins like greed, sins like impatience, sins like anger. Not only do they get a pass, but often they'll get you a promotion. They say that in the business world, 
That while you would never want to be married to a sociopath, you might want to have someone who is a sociopath being the CEO of the company that you have shares in. Because they make things happen, they get things done. Do you know what? Do we need to get rid of that division to be able to be profitable? Let's just get rid of that division then. And so it is. And, and the degree to which we allow church to become a business rather than a ministry is the degree to which we are going to allow sin to flourish and even to be encouraged. I am constantly surprised, though at this stage I shouldn't be, by how many otherwise good church leaders refuse to admit their wrong and take correction. It's shocking. And when you see churches kind of have scandals and stuff over the years, it almost always involves other things as well, but that's almost always part of the problem. That there was somebody who either nobody had the courage to say you're out of line to, or when someone did say they're out of line, then that person got summarily dismissed. We have to work very hard. And it is difficult, because when you are in church ministry, you get a thousand complaints every five minutes, it feels sometimes. And and, and 990 of those are, are normally invalid. But you've got to keep hearing because some of them are going to be right. And you've got to have the heart and the attitude to be able to accept that. So when I see people producing fruit that is fitting to their salvation, I'm seeing people more than anything else becoming more humble. I'm seeing people grow in love, grow in ministry and service. And we've got to get away from the model of church that you see somebody walk in and just by the way they dress, you know, okay, there's a few problems here. And you want them to change in five minutes if they're allowed to come back for a second Sunday. But, you know, the, the deacons of the church, by the way, not referring to you, Michael, the deacons of the church are, are, are people who, who are, are puffed up in their pride. And that's often the reason they want to get that person out the door. Look at me defending the church. Bah. You know? And, and that's how we create camouflage for wolves to hide in churches. By, uh, by, by dismissing certain sins and focusing on other sins. And we need to be very careful. Very careful. But equally, I think sometimes sins in churches are hidden because we can be so quick to jump on them. So quick. You know, and I think that, be careful how I say this, but if you're struggling with stuff, I'm not going to kick anybody out for struggling with sin. I just want you to know that. It doesn't matter what the sin is, I'm not kicking you out for struggling with it. I'm kicking people out of church if they embrace their sin, refuse correction, and seek to live in a manner that is not worthy of the calling by which they've been called, then there will be church discipline, which begins, remember, with individuals going to individuals, and then a couple of people joining that individual, if need be, and then if it eventually comes to leadership, it eventually comes to leadership. But yes, there will be church discipline when people embrace sin and, and, and elevate sin and, and, and you know, exalt sin. 
But if you're struggling with sin, oh, you just come and have a chat. You know why? Because I struggle with sin too. And one of the greatest signs of salvation is that you see the sin in your life and it starts to disgust you. You see the sin in your life and you don't want it anymore. You see the sin in your life and you want to overcome it. Oh, those people, you can come. You can come here and you can come to me and you can come to others in this church and it will always be a place that is safe. For marriages that are fractured to broken, for people who just keep going back to the same sins, there will always be help because struggling is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you people just going on with their lives day after day and there it's always going to be fruit that will eventually come out to show that they were never the Lord's. And so the warning is, is that just because someone professes Christ does not make them a Christian. Just because someone lifts their hands in worship doesn't make them a Christian. Just because somebody goes to church and has done all their lives doesn't make them a Christian. I'm reminded of the story of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus. And if there was anybody who checked every single box when it comes to religion and faith and, and faith in the community, he checked every single box. And Jesus says, not enough. You need to be born again. And his response was, how can I be born again when I'm already old? And we all think that Jesus is saying something that just sounds weird. Like, how can I, how can I be born? I've been born once. Like, how can I be born again? But actually, that expression was an idiomatic Jewish expression. And you, they talked about being born again. You heard the expression, life begins at 40? As somebody who's over that age, I can assure you it didn't. But anyway, you might have heard the expression... But, but the, in the Jewish culture, if you got married, that was called being born again. If you became a Pharisee, being born again, you know, and various things. And, and this guy had gone through every possible thing that a born again would apply to other than being king. And he wasn't in the right tribe and there was no king at the time. And that couldn't happen anyway. And right at the top of the tree was not just being a Pharisee, but being the head of a rabbinical school that would teach other Pharisees. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, are you not the teacher of Israel? Again, an expression speaking of someone who trained up the other Pharisees. This guy was at the pinnacle, member of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. It's a new life for you. Your religion doesn't cover it. And so how do people respond how will people respond when they say... Actually, one, one last point. It's always good to look at my notes occasionally. I, I tend to preach without doing that most of the time. But I, did, I took a glance and I almost missed one very important thing. One last thing on the fruit. He says, he says, it will not be anyone but he who does the will of my father. I think if you're looking at what good fruit looks like, that is the ultimate test. What are you living for? Your will or God's will? That's the bottom line. The surest thing of true salvation is somebody who says, I want to live for Christ. Not my will be done, 
but yours. I might not feel like this. I might not want to do that, but I'm going to do it because your will be done. And I think that that's just the the sine qua non, as they say, the the non-negotiable. This is the bottom line. If you are just simply going through life living the way that you want to live, doing the things that you want to do, and it just so happens that one of the things you want to do is go to church from time to time, to read your Bible from time to time, to sing songs about Jesus from time to time, then that isn't going to help you one little bit. It is the death of your will and the embracing of the Father's will. That's the bottom line. So how will people respond, as we were saying? Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day. And by the way, this is the, the third reason why I think the Lord Lord refers to Yahweh. Not only does it say, in my name in a moment, but he also has the expression, on that day. Those who were with us through the Isaiah studies a few years ago will remember that the shorthand, on that day, on that day, on that day, was used routinely as shorthand for the Lord's Day. The Day of the Lord. Regulars will know that I'm not fond of people calling Sunday the Lord's Day because it detracts from the Bible Bible's use of that terminology to speak of the time of tribulation and judgment which ends with the coming of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom and so it will be on that day which is what day the day of the Lord and on that day they will say what Lord Lord I mean that's the clearest connection to Lord being a reference here to Yahweh and the name of God and so it is is that people will recognize Jesus as God and they will say to him how come I'm not going to be in the kingdom and he, he will say to them, or rather they will say to him, in your name did we not prophesy, in your name cast out demons, in your name do many miracles. Notice the threefold repetition, in your name, in your name, in your name. Friends, this is what taking the name of the Lord in vain means. As I routinely say, There was not a widespread problem a few thousand years before the time of Christ where people who were Jewish would go around, accidentally drop a hammer on their toe and go, oh Yahweh. That wasn't the problem. The problem was people attributing to Yahweh things that he never said, things that he wasn't false descriptions, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. When I drive past that church on, I don't even want to use the word church, when I drive past that building on the way to church and I see those banners basically exalting particular types of sin and saying you can commit that sin and come here and no one's ever going to tell you off. When I see that, then that's taking the name of the Lord in vain, that you were called such a building church. So... What is it that they did in his name that gave them cover that they would think that they were saved? They one, prophesy, two, cast out demons, three, do many miracles. There is today, amongst people who profess Christ, Christ, there is a widespread belief that all the miracles and things that we see in the New Testament should be happening routinely today. Now, I don't want to labour this point, and I also don't want to be misunderstood, so let me be brief, but pay attention. 
I believe that God is still the God who does miracles, and I do not believe that miracles have ceased. If you are sick, I will pray for God to heal you, and I believe that he can, and I believe that on occasion he will. We see miracles in life here and there, but they are here and there. There is a misunderstanding that miracles just happened throughout the Bible. It's just miracle, 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 miracle all the time. That's not the case. There were limited periods where it happened a lot. Moses and the wilderness wanderings, Elijah and Elisha. Then we have the time of Jesus and the apostles. But for most of the biblical history, miracles were few and far between. Equally, many people in the charismatic churches today think that, you know, well, we just, we should be casting out demons left, right, and center because that's what Jesus did. Where do you see people casting out demons before the Gospels? Where do you find it in the Old Testament? It's not there. Well, when we go after the, 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 the um, Gospels and Acts, when we come to the epistles, how many times do we have an instruction, this is how you cast out a demon? When you cast out a demon, do it this way. Not once. There was a particular period of time when Jesus came to the earth and the enemy was on full alert. Everybody was called in, demons were rampant, and so on and so forth. And the reason was, is because people could be indwelt by demonic beings of some sort, whatever those evil spirits were, we won't get into that today. But after Pentecost, everybody who believed in the gospel is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you can't have a demon in you. You're full. And so what's the solution if somebody is truly demonic today, demon-possessed? You preach the gospel. Anyone who believes in that gospel receive the Holy Spirit. Simple as that. Now, all of that is to say, what do we make with the fact that these people will do many miracles? Are miracles not a good thing? Well, yeah, I guess they are. Should we say miracles are a good thing? Miracles are a good thing. That's fine. When I saw the news that this false teacher that I was referencing earlier on, that he had put out this tweet, they, them, pronouns, blah, 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 and all of this, and it was on a particular group on social media, and I saw Christians commenting and saying, well, you know, but he does have that charity thing, and he is doing good work that helps these people who are drug addicted or poor or whatever else. Isn't that good? Listen, if your idea of Satan is this red creature with horns who does harm in every which way he can, you have not paid attention to the Bible. He comes as an angel of light. There is, for example, just one example, there is a guy out there who calls himself the medical medium. And he has lots and lots and lots of books about how you should eat healthily and what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat, what you should stop doing, what you should start doing. Let me just categorically say, if you follow his advice, most of you, depending on various dietary issues and restrictions you have, but for most people, you follow his advice, you will be much healthier than you are today. Pretty good advice from my perspective. How did he get that information? A spirit told it to him. Well, does it, doesn't that not mean then if, he, if, if, if a demon says to eat these foods that we should not eat those foods? Listen, demons would love for you to be healthy 
never to be sick, to have superb physical health, to have no conflict in your life, to be wealthy, to be successful, and to otherwise just have the smoothest of lives. Just so long as you don't trust in Christ. And whenever someone does trust in Christ, Paul says, if you seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Have you seen my servant Job? That's what happens to people who really want to live for God. And so I think we need to get this idea out of our head that Satan doesn't want anything to go well for you. Well, maybe not for you because you're a Christian. But outside of the church, he'd love to bless a whole bunch of people. He'd love for them to be wealthy, to, to, to be healthy and everything else. And he would also love for them to do miracles. You're like, what, Satan do miracles? Oh, yes, you betcha. Let's turn briefly, very briefly, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, if if it's going to take a while, don't bother, because I'm just going to read it. We won't be here long. But it says this in 2 Thessalonians 2 from verse 9, talking of the Antichrist, whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. When the Antichrist comes, why on earth would anybody do what the Antichrist says? Why would anybody want to worship the Antichrist? If he has a mark of some sign, why would anyone want to take his mark? Are people really that dumb? Well, we're post-COVID now, so I think we know the answer to that. But let me just say this, that he will do, he will come with power, he will perform signs, and he will do wonders. And that's why people will believe. How many times have you heard someone who would say to you when you try and share the gospel, well, if God would just do a miracle, then I would believe. Oh, well, there's going to be miracles. There's going to be a man who comes who's a spiritual man, and he's going to tell you what to believe. He's going to tell you things about God. He'll also be a politician. He'll also bring peace to the Middle East, temporarily at least. He will do amazing things. He will be very clever, very nice. People will like him. He'll be really popular. and have more followers on Instagram than all of us put together. And on top of that, he'll do miracles. And he goes on to say, And with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. You have got to love truth. You have got to want the will of God more than your own will. You have got to want to know what is right more than you want to be right. It is the love of truth that will protect you so that when somebody comes along and does an amazing miracle and people get out of wheelchairs and people rise from the grave and people have their eyesight restored and amazing things happen that you don't get distracted by those things and you say, what's he teaching? Because I love the truth more than I love having my eyesight restored. I love the truth more than I love seeing my mother walking out of that wheelchair. I love the truth more than those things. And unless your faith is grounded in truth, you have no faith at all. And you can be deceived in your unrighteousness. And for this reason, because they did not love the truth, God sends on them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth 
but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Wouldn't it be great if someone comes along and says, hey, God doesn't want you to change. You can keep doing that thing you want to do. You can keep living that way. Oh, and you can be rich. Most of the, 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 the preachers who have the biggest audiences often in this country are those who will tell you that you can be rich, you can be prosperous, you can have all the things you want, you can be healthy, you can have all of that stuff. That's what people want to hear. Why? Because they are unrighteous. Don't feel sorry for all the people at Joel Osteen's church. God has judged them and given them over to a deluding influence that they might believe what is false because they love their unrighteousness. Simple as that. And so, as we come to the end of this passage and we're warned of the things that will allow people to go undercover, as it were, in the church, Jesus says at the end, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I'm a little over today. I'm sorry, but I want to, I want to just mention this last point. Most of you, if you're using a pew Bible, and if not in your own Bible, you might notice that this last expression, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, is in capital letters. It's in capital letters. What does that mean? It means it's a quote from the Old Testament. Psalm 6. Just going to read to you from Psalm 6. You might want to turn there. We're going to end in Psalm 6 today. How do I summarize all of Psalm 6 in about two minutes? Let's give it a go. Hold on tight. Nitro boost. Let's go. Psalm 6. Yahweh, do not reprove me your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. These expressions are expressions that are linked to Psalm 2. Jesus in Psalm 2 is going to come. He's going to judge his enemies. And all of those who take refuge in him will be blessed. But those who are against him, those who don't want to be chained to his rules and regulations, they are the ones who laugh and God laughs and mocks. And they will receive their justice. So in Psalm 6, he's using words that point back to Psalm 2. And David says, do not reprove me in your anger, do not discipline me in your wrath. And what he's doing in that is he is saying, I am being treated like one of the enemies of God. These are the words used to describe what will happen to God's enemies. Why am I being treated like an enemy of God, David is saying. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, I'm pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. In Psalm 2, we're told that those who God will be opposed to will be terrified by his wrath. The same Hebrew word is here used and translated dismayed. My bones are terrified, dismayed. My soul is greatly terrified, dismayed. Sometimes your soul can be so greatly dismayed that it affects your bones and it affects you physically as well. And so he says, oh Yahweh, how long? Notice in his suffering, he just calls to Yahweh again and again and again. Return, O Yahweh, rescue my soul, save me because of your loving kindness. Notice, not save me because I deserve better. Because you know what, folks? We don't. But save me because of who you are, Yahweh, because of your loving kindness. There is no remembrance of you in death in Sheol who will give you thanks. In other words, if I die, then I can't give you thanks for rescuing me. 
If you just don't turn and get me, if you don't take me away, if you don't change your approach and stop treating me like an enemy, then how can I praise you? I'm weary with sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. My eye has become wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. I'd love to spend more time on verses 6 and 7, but we're out of time. Suffice to say, his suffering was very, very real. There are many of you here who are suffering. And you sob and you sob, and you wail and you wail, and you cry out and you cry out. And sometimes it feels like you are an enemy of God and not his friend. And then what does he say? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus will say on that day. He will say to those who professed faith but weren't saved, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Why is he pointing us to Psalm 6? And more, more to the point, why is he pointing us to the last paragraph of Psalm 6? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayers. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed, terrified. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. We go through this life and it seems like some people just never have trials, never have trouble, never have difficulty and we just sit and we sob. It seems like the enemies of God prosper and we hate it. We hate injustice. We hate not being able to go to our local takeout when Gavin Newsom is sitting down at the French laundry or whatever it was called, having meal with his rich friends. We hate injustice and we should hate injustice. But you know what? Justice is coming. Justice is coming. And there will be a day, as the psalmist says at the end of this psalm, when we who sometimes feel like in life we have been treated like God's enemies, that he will raise us up and those who've had it easy in this life and have in their ease and in their comfort, they have not turned to God and they have rejected God, that they will be the ones who ultimately will be cast out. So what is Jesus saying in this last quote? He is saying there is a time when justice will come. And how, friends, do we make sure that we are the ones who, though we are sinners, are nonetheless welcomed into his kingdom without there being any injustice? We must turn to Christ. We must turn from our sin. And we must put aside our will our rights and wrongs and we must embrace his will and his declaration of what is true and what is right and even though that will undoubtedly lead to a life of testing trial rejection and suffering we nonetheless press on crying out to Yahweh knowing that the day of justice will one day come and for that false teacher that I referenced, he does so much harm to the name of God. But justice will one day come. I pray that we will all be found on the right side on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this harsh reminder. May this be a place full of people who love truth.
And when people come in who don't love the truth, may you bring them to repentance. And may we grow in truth. And may we comfort one another in the midst of suffering. And may we be assured that redemption draweth nigh. That justice is coming. That your work will one day be complete. And that we who have kissed the sun will not be seen as enemies, but as friends, as beloved, as, as, and as blessed. Amen.